1: This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 318, and we're recording on February 15th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot, and it is Tired Tuesday. It overseas. is here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hopefully we're more awake by Thursday when you're listening to this. We'll see. We'll see.
2: I just it now takes me days to recover from a thing. Like I watched the oh. Super Bowl, which I did not. There was not imbibement to excess or anything like that because I'm too old for that. Also, but I stayed up like an hour past my normal bedtime. Yeah, and here on Tuesday, I'm still not recovered <laughs> <laughs> from like I went to bed at ten and I'm still
1: yeah. too tired. I stayed up. I've been staying up super late to watch some of the Olympics, mm-hmm. and it is. I yeah, I'm gonna be feeling that for like a month. <laughs>
2: This is
1: just how it is. <laughs> team old. All right. Here we go. Well, aside from when we're complaining about life, uh, this
2: is a book recommendation
1: show, we swear that means you can send in your requests for reading recommendation and we might answer it on the show. You can send those in either via email, getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can send them in through the form and the show notes on the site. And it can be for you. Maybe there's like a certain kind of book that you love. It can be for a book club, a family member, a friend, a trip, whatever. Uh, And if it's a time-sensitive request, please put time-sensitive, and then the date you're hoping to hear back by, either in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form. We'll try. We'll see what happens. Uh, Let's see. We have some feedback. We have a bunch of feedback today. All right. Laura says, for the person who wanted histotainment, they might like Byzantium by Stephen Lawhead. A monk from the British Isles is trying to get to Byzantium and runs or sails into a lot of issues on the way. Uh, Suzanne says for the reader who wanted historical baseball fiction, there's the Mickey Rawlings mystery series by Troy Seuss. The titular character is a journeyman baseball player in the 1910s and 1920s who bounces around from team to team and finds himself involved in murder investigations on a regular (laughs) basis because obviously baseball players are also solving murders. I love it. Oh, this is great. Uh, Suzanne also says this might work for the reader a few episodes ago whose boyfriend wanted Maisie Dobbs, but a guy. Alicia says to the person looking to fill a yellow jacket shaped hole in their life, We Ride Upon Sticks by Quan Berry. A high school girls' field hockey team in late 1980s Massachusetts turns to witchcraft to ensure a winning season. Or do they? <sighs> And then from Maryland, uh, for also for historical baseball fiction, uh, I recommend Joe Harris, The Moon by Joyce A. Miller. It's a historical fiction following the journey of a minor league player who ends up in the 1927 World Series. All right. Cool. Uh, Amanda, mm-hmm. do you want to read
2: our first question? Do I ever. <laughs> okay. Our first question is from Chrissy who says, my fiance and I are getting married in July. Congratulations. Our honeymoon is going to be a road trip through South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, and a bit of Idaho. We're going to be mostly checking out national parks and museums. Whenever I go on vacation, I love to try to read or listen to audiobooks about the place we're going. Do you have any good recommendations for books based on this area? They can be fiction, nonfiction, any genre. I love mysteries and family sagas, but have a very open mind. I don't like books where animals are hurt or die, but I get that if it's a book based on a farm or ranch, that can happen. I will throw a book across the the room if there is a cancer plot snuck in that isn't mentioned anywhere in the description. I can't stand it when authors think it's a good idea to slip that in when it has nothing to do with the main story. Okay, before we get to that, let's hear from our first sponsor.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888-LOVE and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once... They'll again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building, but turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, Rules are meant to be broken. Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. Elle Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> All right. What a fun trip. This sounds very exciting. Mm-hmm. So I picked
2: a book that takes place in South Dakota because that's the first place you mentioned. So that's the first thing I looked up <laughs> <laughs> in my like very detailed Goodreads account that has books set in different states and stuff like that. I've like made oh, so many shelves. It's just, it's neurotic, but it's fine. It's very helpful, obviously. So my pick for you is Winter Counts by David Heska Wamble Wyden. And this takes place in South Dakota, as I said, on the Rosebud Indian Reservation, Mostly, and then parts of it also take place, take place in Denver. So the main character's name is Virgil, and he is a, a vigilante, essentially. So, of course, the American justice system has completely abandoned, not has, always had, never unabandoned, <laughs> was never interested in and is still not interested in doing anything that involves finding justice for people who live on reservations. And so when the people who live there can't find justice, uh, when crimes are committed... Where they need help in that way from a, a you know a legal entity instead of going to the cops they go to Virgil and so he will do things like if your child was assaulted he will exact justice and it's not always like it's not arresting someone it's like his version of justice it's quite violent often um and so he this is the thing that he does like people pay him it's his job and as the book opens the reservation in general is starting to have a heroin problem, especially among the teenagers. And the council asks him to do something about it, like to figure out where the drugs are coming from. And he's like, not super interested in dealing with this. He doesn't like the council member who asked him to do it. It sounds like, you know, it's outside of the scope of his particular expertise, which is like breaking kneecaps. And he doesn't really care to get involved. But then his nephew, who he is caring for overdoses and ends up in the hospital And so now he's like, well, personally invested in this problem and agrees to take it on. So he goes on this road trip with his ex-girlfriend to figure out how these drugs are making their way into the reservation. And that's the mystery that he's solving um it's very like tense and fast-paced i think it makes a great audiobook because it's super super engaging it's not you know like (laughs) light-hearted as you can tell this isn't like yay south dakota i mean it's not boo south dakota either but this is not a book that's going to get you hyped up necessarily about like the landscape or anything but it is a real slice of life um and it is so engaging as i said compelling 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 so it's winter counts by david heska Wandley Weiden.
1: Cosine. Hmm. And I've got your lighthearted, <laughs> parks focused, entertaining pick. I picked Subpar Parks by Amber Share because obviously, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the Instagram account. It's great. Now there's a book. And I'm personally very excited about this one. It is a combination of shares illustrations of the different parks along with those one-star reviews that have made the Instagram so great and popular. But it's also got a bunch of other stuff. It's got more from the author about, like, her relationship with nature and the parks. It's got tips from rangers, which is super cool. Like, if you're going to go to a bunch of national parks, like why would you not want the inside scoop from a ranger? Like, that's awesome. And, of course, you know, you get all the funny, funny. So I think this is a great book that, like, obviously it's maybe not, like, a book you're going to read in the car, but, like, when you pull over or you're stopping or you're getting ready to go to a specific park, like, this is going to be there for you. And I just, I mean, I will never get over the too spiky review of Bryce Canyon. (laughs) It is spiky. Too spiky. Like, I just don't even know what happens to people's brains. Anyway, subpar parks. It's great. There's a book by Amber Share. That's my, that's my rec. Okay. Ooh, our next question is from Molly, who says... Queer international horror. I know this is probably out of both of y'all's comfort zones, but I am in a horror book club, and we curate themed lists to choose books from. We've had queer horror and international horrors categories, but I want to do a combination of the two, specifically so that I can incorporate The Devourers by Indra Das, which I love. The other books I already have on my list are Something by Akwaika and Mezzi. Just just anything. That's fair. Uh, What Do Nightmares Dream of, Paradise Rot, and The Root of Ice and Salt. I love... more to round out the list. This is I had not heard of most of these books, Mm. side note, um, which is kind of cool. And yeah, I did go for help for this one, because as you said, it's not exactly my wheelhouse. But I have for you a book that I actually am dying to get. I put it in a library hold as soon as I found it. It's called A Small Charred Face Mm. by Kazuki Sakuraba, and it's translated by Jocelyn Allen. And this is About vampires who are also bamboo, question mark? Like, (laughs) super, super interesting premise. It's a... There's three different narrators, teenagers who, and their stories are, like, separate but linked. It's a linked story set, which I love, personally. And what I hear about this book is that it is both deeply messed up and, like, gorgeous, which is an interesting combination of things. The Bamboo, who are the vampire or vampires in question, they're from China. They're living in exile in Japan. They live, like, a hundred years. Um, they only feed on the already dead, uh, and, like, have, like, yeah, this whole very elaborate society. And like one of the boys is a young, uh, his name is Keo, and his family was murdered by the Yakuza and he's rescued by one of these bamboo slash vampires. Um, and so he's like telling the story. And then, and so there you're getting all of these different ones. And yeah, it just sounds fascinating. I really, I really, I, nobody has been specific with me about the deeply messed up parts. So I don't know how I'm going to do, but I'm going to try because it sounds really cool and it seems like a good pick for you. So again, that's A Small Charred Face by Kazuki Sakuraba, translated by Jocelyn Allen. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um, Okay, I picked Jawbone by Monica Odeha, translated by Sarah Booker. This is a new release that just came out this month. And like Jen, I am also on hold for this at the library. I put it on hold because it sound it is not blurbed this way, but it sounds to me like an ecuadorian megan abbott but more catholic and more creepy and i'm Mm. very into that so it's about two girls Uh, well it's actually okay so there's like a group of school girls these are high school students who go to an all-girls school it's a catholic school run by opus day and they are headed up by fernanda and annalise who are their you know kind of queen bees and they spend all of their free time in this like abandoned building that's found that they find that's owned by Fernanda's father. And in that kind of like yellow jackets-y sort of way that show that uh, was talked about on the on this show a few weeks ago, um, the girls in this unsupervised, abandoned setting become completely deranged. <laughs> like the, and and it's it's that plus. But they have there's all of this like overarching. Catholic influence on it. So like they set up altars. They developed their own god that they call the white god. So there's a lot, and there's a lot of like, as you can tell, pretty overt colonialist commentary happening here Mm. Uh, and the girls are being watched by a teacher who herself is losing her grip on reality and decides that she needs to control the girls in like a really horrifying way so it's the that kind of um devolution of the humanity of teenage girls which i think is always a fascinating thing for authors to take up again megan abbott is like the queen of this but in ecuador so you know plus catholicism plus colonial commentary so that's jawbone by monica odeja All right. Question three is from Carol, who says in the face of the U.S. government's decision to sue Hawaii over the Red Hill fuel tank spill, acting in the interest of the military industrial complex rather than human rights. I need some fortifying literature. I recently devoured Julian Aguan's The Properties of Perpetual Light, and it completely flipped the bill, somehow managing to soften the sharp edges of the world, even as it inspires you to rage against them. Though mostly prose, the book is deeply poetic, and yet the author brings his lawyer's brain to the party. It does introduce a few social justice issues, but mostly it's not trying to educate or reveal the depth of injustices beyond some personal anecdotes. It just accepts that the reader knows the world is a mess and is looking for a way through. Plus, it was short and broken into bite-sized chunks. What else is out there like this? All right, Jen, what you got?
1: So I'm going with Incarceration Nation by Baz Dreisinger because... I don't know that it's exact. I mean, I haven't read Properties of Perpetual Light, although now I really want to. Mm. So you have sold it extremely well. But with the vibe that you were talking about, this is the first book I thought of because it is both like, I mean, it's about the prison systems globally. Like it's around the world. Like what are prisons like? And so therefore it is extremely rage inducing in some, but it also is like weirdly hopeful in that way that you're talking about where it's like oh right like people are doing things Mm -hmm. that could help this here's some thoughts about what could help and like let's think about this together like it's that it feels like a calling in like a like a here's here's the information you didn't know you didn't have and like now like let's think about it together and I do think Dreisinger is a great writer. I think that she brings her own perspective very intelligently to this. And um, yeah, I mean, she goes, she goes to South Africa to work with like to see how they're working with genocide survivors in Rwanda. She goes to Thailand, she goes to Jamaica, she goes to Singapore, she goes to Brazil, like she goes to Norway. Like it's just she goes everywhere. And there's also so many countries handle this extremely differently, which is not a thing I was really aware of of back in, you know, the mid-aughts or whatever, whenever it was that I read the book. And probably it wasn't that long ago. It was probably more like 10 years ago, which is bananas to say. But anyway, the point is, I think this is a really useful, smart book. And I do think it will give you the feeling that you're looking for as well. So again, that's Incarceration Nations by Baz Dreisinger.
2: All right. I picked Weather by Jenny Ophel, which is also pretty short. It's about 200 pages. And she is just... The reigning champion of really short, punchy, consumable chapters. Her chapters mm. are sometimes not half a page, a few sentences. They're very poetic in that way. I don't know that she's got a background in poetry, but all the books that I've read of hers are are like that, like poem-sized chapters. So Weather is about a woman named Lizzie who works as a librarian – and she also has some like family stuff going on she's care. uh she's a caretaker for her mother and her brother who is an addict and who has recently become a father um and she's working on the like her side hustle is working for a woman named sylvia who was her mentor and who produces a podcast called hell in high water which is about climate change and so the job that lizzie is given is answering the email and the mail that the podcast gets which is a little large it's a large volume because in the book this is a really popular show and so she's answering email and mail letters both from left-wingers who are so caught up in climate anxiety that they can't live their lives and people on the right who think that the show is a tool of satan to bring about the end blah 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 blah, blah whatever whatever it is <laughs> right-wing conservative people think i don't know um and so this is what she does through the whole book and so the setup is similar to what you were saying we're like The book is acknowledging that this is happening out in the world, right? Obviously, because it's about a podcast that's about climate change. So it is acknowledging that climate change is happening. It's also acknowledging that people are doing things about it. But like, what do we do at home? Like this character, Lizzie, is caring for her family. She has children. She has a useless husband. She's got little kids. She's got her brother to take care of. You know, she's got all of these plates that are spinning. And like, she's also supposed to to go protest outside of Exxon? Like, what are we supposed to actually do about this? Sometimes the answer is like, worry, you know, like question mark, sh- shrug, I don't know. Um, in the moments that you can snatch, what can normal people do? And I think that that when you're faced with like, news, like you were talking about in your question about the government, or the military or some corporation doing something unjust, and that just kind of deflated, defeated feeling that you can that, that drives you to literature i think this is a great place to put that feeling because she shares that feeling and she's not sharing it in a like therefore we should do nothing or like therefore all is lost sort of way it's just an acknowledgement that like mm. yeah that's a sucky feeling it's a sucky mm. position for normal people to be in that doesn't mean we have to we get to like wallow in it forever but like that's completely real and i think that's really helpful so that's weather by jenny awful Nice.
1: All right. Our next question is from Alex, who says, I'm looking for a book that follows multiple generations of a family. I love Pachinko and Middlesex and want those same vibes. I love seeing how events in childhood shape the way people behave in their adulthood and the dynamic between multiple generations. If possible, I'd love to find a story centered around a family in the American South. I'll just keep going. I was go- I changed my mind like 16 times about this book, but I was trying to find a book that I haven't already talked about a bunch on the show. Uh, so I'm going with The 12 Tribes of Hattie by Ayana Mathis because this book was like the book for a hot minute there, but I don't feel like people talk about it anymore. And I think it's definitely a book that fits your question. Well, mostly, mostly it fits your question. Okay, so uh, before I get into the description, content warnings for Child Death, addiction, domestic abuse, and homophobia. These characters go through some rough stuff. Um, And this is about a family that is part of the Great Migration. Hattie Shepard, the the Hattie, is 15 years old in 1923. She leaves Georgia and goes to Philadelphia. So this is the part that doesn't exactly fit because Philadelphia is not the South. But, Mm. you know, whatever. Close enough. She goes to Philadelphia to, like, try to have a better life, Um, and she ends up married to a man who, like, is an alcoholic and an addict, and, like, that doesn't work out. Um, She loses her twins in their infancy, but then she has nine more children, and, like, the story is told in ten different perspectives— you get uh, like the children and then a grandkid. I want to say, uh, so you're getting all of these different perspectives, sort of sw- swirling around this one woman um, who has like made this choice and now is trying to make good on it, and how difficult that was, and like yeah, how it shapes the generations after. Like I just, I just think this is the book. This is a book. Mm-hmm. This is a book that does the thing. So again, that's the Twelve Tribes of Hattie by Ayana Mathis.
2: Um, this was harder to find something than I... expected. I had my pick in mind, which is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, but I went Googling, like, multi-generational Southern story just to see what the internet would come up with, and when I tell you that everyone says Gone with the Wind and how angry that makes me, because not only is Gone with the Wind, like, you know, whatever. It's Gone with the Wind. We all know the problems with Gone with the Wind. It's not multi-generational. Like, that that is a book about Scarlett O'Hara. She has parents (laughs) and she has children, but it is not about, like, (laughs) you don't switch perspectives. It's just her the whole time. I just, ugh. Yeah, there aren't that many in the South
1: specifically that are multi-generational? Yeah. That was the hard part of this question for me.
2: Right. And my assumption about, now I'm just apparently Ted talking about this, is twofold. (laughs) It's, one, America's a very young country compared to Mm. other places that you can get multi-generational stories. But also, you can't tell the story of the South without telling the story of Black people. And Black people don't have historical records going back generations in America a lot of the time. So I guess I get it. But, like, stop recommending Gone with the Wind for this question. It's not the only book that takes place in the South. Anyway, that's my run. So The Vanishing Half is about the Vignette's twins, their sisters, who live in a small town in Louisiana. And this little, tiny, tiny town is designed, like, planned on purpose to house only light-skinned black people, black people who can pass. And when the book opens, it's like early in the 20th century. They've done this to give themselves like a place to go because they don't fit in in white society or black society. And since some of them are trying to pass, it's like a place they can hide. And they don't like darker-skinned people coming in. They don't like their kids associating with darker-skinned people. It's like a whole thing. The Vignes twins are light-skinned, just like everybody else who lives there. And they have that itch, you know, they're like 16. They don't like living in... This tiny little town where nothing ever happens. And so they decide to leave. They run off together. They go to, I think, it's New Orleans and decide that they're going to, like, make their own way. It does not go as planned. One of the sisters gets a job working as, as a secretary for a company um, passing as white. The Her boss, like, takes a liking to her. They get together. They get married. And she decides to pass as white for the rest of her life so she leaves her sister with no warning goes off and marries this guy and then pretends to be white forever and then the other sister does kind of the opposite thing she marries a very dark-skinned black man who and has a baby who is also dark-skinned and then um she leaves because he is abusive to her and so she takes her daughter back to her hometown so the sisters go off on these two converging paths one of them pretending to be white moves to California, moves into like a gated community, all of that. And then one of them goes home to this place where her daughter is no longer accepted. And then you switch perspectives to the kids. The The daughter of the, um, the, the white passing sister is, you know, has this like whole secret that You're following along, like, is she ever going to find out? And if so, what is she going to do with the information? Um, The darker-skinned grandchild knows more. And at the beginning of the book, you get a lot more of their backstory with the twins' um, parents as well. So it's three generations that you're following here. Trigger warnings for racism, violent racism, and also domestic abuse. The thing that you're really yearning for, I guess, in this entire story is, like, for these sisters to come back together. Because the big question is, like, why didn't you tell me that you were leaving? I, you know, the, the sister who is, who stays, who is abandoned is so hurt by that and spends her, her entire life, like, why didn't you tell me whatever ha- what happened to you? Are you okay? You know, that whole question. And that question that has reverberating effects both back in time, like to her parents or to her mother and forward in time to her children and generations beyond that so like what effect does lying have on your kids and your kids kids? it's just big giant 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 questions that are not specific to the south but are in a lot of ways in this particular context so that's the vanishing half by
0: brit bennett and it is time for our next sponsor today's episode is brought to you by sourcebooks landmark so king solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies and that is quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon's siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints long after we are gone by Tara Shelton Harris, today's episode is brought to you by disney books do y'all like caribbean mythology What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Jolie and Tiffany D. Jackson. So unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But but then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money so what does she do she cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals but then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders and the truth selena has been denying can no longer be avoided There is evil lurking in the forests that surround St. Virgil. And to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Dass. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode.
2: Okay, our next question is from Tiffany, who says, On a recent episode, you recommended a book called Honey, Olives, and Octopus that is my almost perfect book. Can you recommend something similar but with a focus on a place in Latin America, more specifically Central America or the Hispanic Caribbean? Or East Asia? To be honest, any region outside of Europe is fine. I just need the food culture book fix. Uh, The second part of the question is, I love researching, specifically cultural history and methods of historical study, research, and learning. Can you please recommend a book about methodologies of historical research or something that's sideways that can give me a new perspective on the research process in a social sciences type of field? Okay, Jen, what you got? All
1: right, this is from my TBR. I also love... A food memoir mm-hmm. and this is a tiger in the Kitchen a memoir of food and family by Cheryl Lu Tan and Cheryl grew up in Singapore and then moved to America at 18. Uh, she is like very she's like rebel child. Mm. But then when she's in her 30s um, in New York, she's like a fashion writer. She's successful, but she's feeling like she wants to reconnect with her childhood and specifically the Singaporean dishes that are from her childhood. So she's like, can I go back and like learn how to make these dishes? Like, does anybody remember? Plus, there's a lot of family history that she just like sort of didn't want anything to do with when she was younger, but now that she's getting older is more interested in. So you're getting this sort of personal tour of what it means to leave and then go back, the food, like the family stuff. Like this is is the combination that I like live for. Um, It's got 10 recipes also, and they list pineapple tarts as one of them. And I'm just like, I could not be more here for for that. Give me all of the pineapple things. So I'm just really excited to get into this one, and I thought you might be too. Again, that's A Tiger in the Kitchen, A Memoir of Food and Family by Cheryl Lu Tan.
2: Okay, I took the history research question, and I think what you're asking about is historiography, which I had to pull deep out of my history college brain. So the study of history and historical methods And the history of history is called historiography. So you're looking for uh, a a book about historiography. There are tons of like textbooks and some of which Mm. I read in college that I really enjoy that you can go read. But I'm not going to recommend any of those because I don't want to recommend a textbook. That seems kind of boring. So I (laughs) came at this question sideways and I'm recommending Women in Power by Mary Beard. Mary Beard is a very well-known professor of the classics at Cambridge. She's like not just famous in academic circles. She's kind of internet famous also because she writes a lot about greece and rome and the women of those time periods ancient greece and rome and because of that she she gets trolled a lot on twitter which is just the most what <laughs> like you're just you're trolling this professor because she talks about sappho like it's just get a hobby get a hobby but it's so bad she's gotten so much pushback and vitriol and threats um that she wrote this book women in power which is a little bit about her experience uh, being a like a powerful academic and the immediate backlash that she got about it. And then also actual women from history. So she goes back um, all the way back to like the Odyssey and how women are portrayed in the Odyssey. To up through present day, she talks a little bit about like Medusa and Hillary Clinton. There's a little bit about Elizabeth Warren. So modern history, very contemporary, like pretty recent, all the way back to Homer. And the reason why I think this is a good pick for historiography kind of questions is because she's talking about the history of history. And the history of history is that we don't talk about the women. The history of history is that we ignore the way that women are portrayed in both historical documents and in things like the Odyssey, which you can view as a historical document of sorts. And... Uh, we, we just like completely map our current thinking about the role of women onto those documents and stories and evidence in order to make the narrative fit the what, what we think that it should fit. And not necessarily what like you as a reader think, uh, think, how you think it should fit, but like how old white men who have been in charge of the narrative of history forever think that women should fit into the historical narrative. So it's a big historiography historiographical question of how women are portrayed in history and the research methods, which are usually quite flawed, that get us to this place where we're ignoring women or putting them or, or removing them from their places of power and ignoring their voices and all of that. So it's a pretty slim book. It's a little over 100 pages, but I think it's a good start for a question like this. So that's Women and Power by Mary Beard.
1: Love a historiography soapbox. It's
2: great. (laughs) So great. (laughs)
1: Speaking of our wheelhouses. Okay. So our next question is from Caroline, who says, I'm looking for a novel with a realistic small town as the setting. Specifically, I would like a book set in a small town with tourist traffic that isn't about the tourists. So many books lean too hard into, into the everything is perfect in a small town or... The seedy underbelly is taking over mm-hmm. or recently divorced slash widowed person randomly moves in and rediscovers love and meaning of life or just city people getting out of their element in general. I grew up in a small town and I'm much more interested in the getting by of the locals, the guys serving tourist drinks, the teenage girl selling cheap souvenirs as a summer job, the woman watering the flower beds. Bonus points for being set at a beach, the main characters being in their 20s to 30s and knowing there's a world outside the town, and or characters that are deeply average and relatable, preferably not a murder mystery slash traumatic crime focus. Carolyn, you cracked me up with this one, <laughs> And I like, I feel your rant. It's great. So I picked Ramona Blue by Julia Murphy, which I think hits almost all of your points. It is about teenagers, but it's about a teenager who's about to, like, head out into the world. It's, like, older YA, and I think you're going to love it because its it so exactly captures what you are talking about. Ramona is—she lives in Eulogy, Mississippi, and it is, like— a summer like destination for a lot of people but she's lived there all her life and they lost their home in hurricane katrina when she was five and they have not really recovered There has just not been they haven't had the resources to really put their lives back together so they're living in a trailer she is going to school and working multiple jobs um her parents are separated her mom is you know struggling with addiction is pretty flaky and her dad is just, like, so he's doing his best, but it's it leaves a lot of room. Um, and her older sister is pregnant, and the, her boyfriend is, like, living with them. So it's, like, a lot of home stuff going on. And there's also a sort of really interesting, like, coming-of-age moment. Um, her best friend from childhood, Freddie, has been, like, not around for a long time. But he comes back. And he is a competitive swimmer and he like talks her into swimming with him. And they also start to have a little like their friendship starts to turn into a little more romantic, which is very confusing for Ramona because she has felt very strongly that she is a lesbian like she is very interested she's dated girls like this is what she is this is who she is um but now she's having feelings for this guy and she like really feels weird about it in all of the ways that i think a lot of people who discover they are bisexual or pansexual after having had a queer awakening it is extremely confusing Mm. um and that's what she's struggling with on top of you know being, like, from the lower class, like, dealing with all this family stuff, having to work a lot of jobs and try to go to school and figure out, like, can she have a life outside of this town is a huge question for her. And I just, I freaking love this book so much. It just digs into so many feelings that I think a lot of people have trouble articulating or, like, have not seen on the page before. And it's just a really, it's a great story. And, yeah, you'll get you'll get what you're looking for. So, again, that's Ramona
2: Blue by Julie Murphy. Okay, forgive me, this is a holiday book, but it's so perfect. <laughs> it's so perfect. So I picked The Holiday Switch by Tiff Marcello, who, side note, is amazing. She's a Filipino writer. She was like, she's an army veteran. She's a nurse. She's just like all the things. She's such a badass. So this is a YA novel also, and it takes place in this tiny little town in New York, in like upstate New York and the Finger Lakes kind of area. And this town is most famous for being the setting of a really well-known Christmas movie. So every year the tourists like flock to this movie to get memorabilia and take pictures and all of that. Um, And you mentioned the teenage girl selling cheap souvenirs as a summer job. This book is about exactly that person. Uh, Lila... Castro is a Filipino-American. She lives with her family in this town. They've lived there her whole life. Her mom is a nurse at the local hospital, and her dad runs a small business. Um, she's got, ooh, three, two, three siblings. And it's just, like, very normal. She absolutely knows that there's a world outside of her little town. Uh, she wants to go to medical school when the book opens. She's also a book blogger in the book, so it's, like, quite meta. And... Um, she loves her home. Like, it's not a, th- it's not a, a, a novel about a small town girl who wants to get away because everything is terrible. It's also not perfect. Like, her family experienced an accident, uh, like some property damage to her dad's business and they started to go fund me with some of the locals did not like. They got doxxed. They were harassed. Like, there, there is, it's not a seedy underbelly, but like sometimes people are mean, <laughs> you yeah. know? And especially in a small town where everybody knows your business and everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people can be really judgmental. Just like anywhere else, there are good and bad things about being about living in a small town. I'm from rural Virginia. So I like I love a small town novel, but I don't like it when it's just like every this is stars hollow. No, right? (laughs) it's a dollar general and a check cashing place and like people judging your choices. But also, you know, nature like there's a good and a bad. And I think this book really captures that. She deeply, really like Lila really, really genuinely likes the reasons why people come to her town. She appreciates the tourists. She likes her job because she likes the movie that the, they're coming to like, that the fans are coming to appreciate. And she wants to like earn money to to go to medical school and help her parents. the The town and its like side characters are quite close knit. Not everybody, because again, some people are just mean, but like the community that her and her family have created in this little town is really genuine and sweet and awesome. So... Yeah, it's not about the tourists. I mean, the tourists come and and then leave, (laughs) as they often do. But it's just about this girl and her family and her group of friends and neighbors just kind of getting by. Like, they're very average, normal, middle class folk, hardworking people. So that's The Holiday Switch by Tiff Marcello. All right. Our last question is from Fat, who says, I recently read the Hell's Library series, and I'm intrigued to see books like this about words, stories, and how we interact and explore them. I've had Strange the Dreamer, Muse of Nightmare, and the Wayward Children series on my TBR, so I'd like books other than that. Thank you. Okay, Jen, your last pick. It's me. Okay, my pick this is
1: I'm reading this right now and I am super enjoying it. It's The Reader by Tracy Chi, which is actually the first in a series, which is always exciting. New series is on my jam. And this is I you know, there are tons of books about books out there, especially in fantasy land, like words have power, etc. etc. And it's an amazing trope. But what I like about The Reader as I'm reading it, ha, ugh, um, is that it's coming at it from a different angle. So in this World, like reading is not a thing, like books Mm. are not a thing, writing literacy is not a thing. Uh, Sophia is the main character, and she oh, right content warning before I get into this violent harm to children, like in the way that so much of YA Mm. is about kids experiencing harm, like that's this is what that's what this is. Sophia is the daughter of two people who like, you know, she grew up knowing that they were in hiding is how I'm going to say this. And her mother dies of an illness. And then her father is like brutally murdered over the thing that they're hiding, which she 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 knows she like has seen it. She has held it in her hands. It's this like square that's like covered. There's some paper in it. Like she doesn't she doesn't know what it is, but she she has seen it. She knows only that her parents have like basically died to keep it from People And she's taken by her aunt. They are on the run. And like they they're like, you know, thieving their way around this world. Um, And she doesn't she only knows that she has to stay in hiding. That's all she really knows. And then Nin is taken from her. She's not sure if she's still alive or dead. Like it's very traumatic circumstances. She feels like it's her fault. And she ends up on this quest to try to get Nin back. And she starts to understand that this is a book and that words are powerful and it's, like, a really fascinating look at, like, how you approach that when you're coming from a place of no knowledge and also the way that anything can be a book is one of my favorite threads of this story is, like, seeing the world around you and seeing all the ways in which if you're not, like, sort of stuck in a specific way that you think about words and books, like, anything can be a book. Like, oh, I love that. Anyway, so there's a bunch of, there's action, there's, you know... Uh, there's a budding romance, like there's all kinds of stuff going on. And um, I think it will give you the vibes It from, a, like I said, from a different angle. So again, that's The Reader by Tracy Chi.
2: All right. I picked the Invisible Library series by Genevieve Cogman, of which there are like a floppity Jillian. I think there are <laughs> like 12, so you will never run out of supernatural booky fantasy stuff happening so it's about a woman named irene who is a spy for the mysterious library with a capital l the library with a capital l exists between worlds and dimensions and their job is to preserve books from every world and dimension um some of which exist across you know like there are, are Copies of Persuasion by Jane Austen in every world and dimension, but they might have different endings or they might have different beginnings or whatever. And so the library houses a copy of all of those things. So it turns into this, like, all of the known knowledge (laughs) in all of the world and all of the worlds beyond the world exists in one place. And her job is to go to these different realities and get copies of books for the library. She gets assigned a new assistant named Kai who's like really cute, Um, but also has <laughs> a lot of secrets and does not talk a lot. And their job is to go to an, an alternative kind of steampunky version of London to get a book. And not just any book, but like a really dangerous book that a lot of people have been after and that no one's been able to get. But when they get there, it's already been stolen by somebody. And a bunch of different like underground CD groups uh in this alternative London are after it and are after her. And To add another wrinkle, the world is infested by chaos, which in this universe, or the universe of this um, kind of book means that unnatural, quote-unquote, creatures have invaded. So there's like vampires and werewolves and things. And they can bend the rules of magic how they see fit in order to do whatever vampire and werewolfy thing they want to be doing in any given moment. So the rules that she's used to obeying in a, in a magical universe don't really apply so much. So she's kind of already off her footing. The thing that her assignment is going awry, her um, assistant again is very cute and again has many secrets is cute has secrets that's a whole trope <laughs> that's,
1: that's our show title yeah. side,
2: <laughs> and so immediately she's just like secret societies danger vampires be vampire in. who is my assistant where is the book and she has a nemesis who shows up uh in the middle of book one to make all this complicated stuff even more complicated so there's a lot of adventure the steampunky elements are really cool there's a lot of like um you know fights on what are the uh, not umbrellas Balloons, hotter balloons. <laughs> <laughs> a thing that goes over your head? I don't know. Um, and it's just really, like, fun and lighthearted and adventure-y. Um, and there are many pages, which seems to be what you're after. So that's the Invisible Library series by Genevieve Cogman.
1: I feel like I misspoke earlier. So just to correct, the Tracy Chi is the start of a trilogy that is all out. It's new to me, but mm-hmm. it's not new to the world. Mm-hmm. It's all The trilogy is complete. It's out in the world. Okay, On that note, we did it. We did the show. Here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you all for listening. If you would like more book recommendations you can check them out at bookriot.com you can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com listen uh you could leave us a rating and or a review on apple podcasts and spotify and pod so many places for you to leave us ratings and reviews and it helps other people to find the show um thank you to our sponsors for making the show possible amanda where can people find you in between the shows
2: on instagram at i'm amanda nelson
1: And you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL, and we will talk to you next time.